Welcome to The Next Great Thing. I'm Andrew Greenstein, CEO at SF AppWorks. Are you a tech entrepreneur? Or maybe you run a creative agency. Do you need help with user research, prototyping, or building your or your client's MVP? SF AppWorks can help you design, develop, deploy, and grow custom software. For 13 years, we've been the secret weapon for startups, creative agency partners, and major players like Humana, AARP, and Westome. If you're ready to level up and partner up, visit sfapworks.com to learn more and get started. All right, so question for you. How much time during your workday do you spend looking for information inside your company? Things like the Google Doc with your team's OKRs or an important deadline from your colleague in Slack, maybe a proposal you did last month. It can take forever, right? It's so frustrating. Turns out we can spend hours a day, up to a third of our time according to some studies, just searching for documents or answers at work. But imagine if you had an AI assistant that could instantly help you find anything you needed across your company's knowledge, systems, and apps. It could completely change the way you search for anything at work, making you and your company way more efficient and productive. My guest today is making that vision a reality. Arvind Jain is the co-founder and CEO of Glean, an AI-powered search platform built specifically for the workplace. Arvind's a Silicon Valley veteran who's been in the tech industry for over 25 years. He's worked at Microsoft, Akamai, and spent over a decade leading search infrastructure at Google as an engineer. As most ex-Googlers who've been on the show have told me, working at Google was an incredible training ground for Arvind, and it was a surprisingly no-rules environment when he first arrived in 2003. It felt much more like a research playground, meant for technologists to build great technology, sort of like being in control of your own destiny, he told me. After Google, Arvind wanted the challenge of building something new from scratch, so he started his own company. Rubrik, a cloud data management platform. As the company grew, Arvin saw how hard it was for his employees to find information across the company. So he set out to create a solution, which became his next company, Glean. Glean is a robust search system that connects all of a company's apps and data into one AI-powered platform. You can ask questions in plain language, and Glean will instantly serve up answers by searching across documents, conversations, calendars, apps, you name it. The key is that it taps into a company's unique data universe, so the answers are tailored to each business. Arvin founded Glean back in 2019, pre-ChatGPT, and has quickly grown the company to over 300 employees. As you'll hear, he sees a future where AI assistants help every employee work more efficiently, a prediction that many of our past guests have echoed. By focusing on solving a real business problem, workplace search, and using AI as an enabler, Glean aims to provide that AI foundation. I'm excited for Arvind to tell you more about his founder journey, his advice for startup founders, and his vision for the future of AI. All right, here's Arvind. Arvind, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. So you have a long career spanning decades in tech, from Microsoft to Akamai to Google to founding a few companies. I'd love if you just take us for a tour on on your career and just kind of go over the highlights. Yeah, absolutely. So... So right now I'm the founder and CEO of Glean, you know, the company we started in 2019. Um, before starting Glean, I was doing another startup called Rubrik, which we started in 2014. Rubrik is an enterprise software company in data security space. Before starting Rubrik, I spent over a decade uh, at Google, working on Google search for you know most of that time. And then I've been part of a few other startups before that, part as part of the early teams at Riverbed and Akamai Technologies. So I've been in the industry for about uh, over 25 years now. What was your first job in the industry? My first job was actually at Microsoft. 
um, you know, right after I graduated uh, from school. I worked on building the Windows uh, operating system at Microsoft. That was the team I was on. And did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Um, I, I actually, it's interesting. Like I had, I had desires to be an entrepreneur early in my career, but then that went away as a, as a thing that I had to do. I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So like I you know, left Microsoft, like joined startups so that I could learn like how, what it was like to build a startup and doing those journeys. Like I, you know, uh, I ended up at Google and I just love being there. So like, you know, the thought of, you know, being an entrepreneur or starting a startup, you know, went away. Uh, but then, I, you know, I, at some point, I guess I did, I did become one, but I was not thinking about becoming one at that time. Can you share from your earlier career some of the pivotal moments that, that drove you into entrepreneurship? The first real experience, you know, with startup for me was at Akamai. So this was a like really small company, uh, late 99, privately held. And I was coming from Microsoft to this company. And I was somewhat shocked, like, you know, like you always had this uh, when you're when you're a large company, you're in an institution, and it feels very foreign for you to sort of even think about that. Hey, could I actually start something like this? But when I saw, you know, Akamai, and it was like relatively small, and it was like people like me, you know, like you know, a few of us, and this was the whole company. You know, it it gave me this um, little bit of that feeling that oh yes, like you know, this like starting a company is maybe not that hard. Like a few people can get can get together and and get started and do it. So, and, and it was also really enjoyable for me. So that, that was sort of when, you know, that spark, you know, came to me about like, you know, hey, maybe I should actually start something. Starting the company is not hard. Building the company is hard, right? That's true. <laughs> that, that, that's well said, yeah. The, well, actually, I would say starting is also hard because you have to convince yourself. And I think I've noticed like, you know, many entrepreneurs actually don't start because, you know, they have great ideas, but, you know, they can't actually build enough conviction in those ideas. So, so no, actually, I would say that even starting is hard. Okay, so you got to work in some small startup teams for a while, and then you jumped back onto the company side with Google. Mm -hmm. And what were your first impressions when you got to Google? Google was amazing. I actually knew this before going in, like Google had this reputation of hiring the, the very best. It was really hard to get in. And when I actually got in um, as an employee, I, was, I felt very lucky. And, and sort of like, you know, I almost had this, you know, like an imposter syndrome. I felt like I was in the middle of all these really amazing engineers and I was just not as good as them. And like, but I was really excited that, you know, I would learn from the best in the industry. And so that was sort of one, like one, one thing that I remember from my early days at Google. Uh, but the other thing which was also really, really interesting was that, you know, this was a company where there were no rules as such. Like there was nobody who would tell you what to do. Like, you know, I showed up on the first day. I don't think I actually got to meet my manager for like another three weeks. And so I asked people, like, how does this thing work? I've joined, like, you know, I got my machine, but I don't know what to do. And people would say, that, yeah, just go talk to people, figure things out. That was sort of the model. And it was actually really, uh, really, really impressive to me. You know, it was a company, you know, which felt more like a research playground. You know, it was meant for technologists to build great technology like you're in control of your own destiny in, the, in some sense. Like you get to do whatever you wanted. Was that challenging to not have a clear idea of what to do and thus not really maybe know where you fit in? Or was it more exciting to be able to sort of chart your own path? It was a bit of both. Like I was just not like fundamentally used to a model like that where you're actually in a large company and you're new and like, you know, like nobody's actually helping you on board in, in, in that sense. So it was terrifying from that perspective, but I think, you know, it makes you learn, like, you know, it actually, you know, 
you know, helped me do so many things, you know, which I was not good at. You know, one of it was like go and talk to people and mm-hmm. like you try to learn, like you know, start conversations, learn, you know, what they're working on, come up with ideas. Then, then you have to sort of come and have, you have to prioritize things. Like you heard about 10 different problems from 10 different people. Now, nobody's telling you which one is the most important one. So you have to make that decision. It forces you to sort of get better, learn new things. And if you had to summarize your time at Google into one big takeaway or one key takeaway, what would it be? That's where I learned everything. You know, that's where I learned how to be a leader. That's where I learned to actually feel that confidence, you know, in myself and tackle big problems. It was an amazing place. I, I feel like, you know, I got to work on amazing products, you know, that all of us use on, you know, in our day-to-day lives. I don't know if you interacted with Marissa Meyer in the early days at Google. We had her on the pod not too long ago, and I asked her this question, so I'll ask you too. How does the current moment with AI compare to the moment that you were feeling when you were there in the early days of Google, when it was sort of the the, the rise of all of the modern internet? Yeah, these two moments have actually felt very different uh, to me. At Google, we did a lot of things which were unprecedented, things that you know people couldn't imagine. For example, mapping out the entire world, you know, having picture of every single restaurant, every single road and every single house. These were things, you know, which were sort of beyond imagination, but like Google was in that moment, really good infrastructure, great people, and we're building these things, which are amazing. The AI revolution right now sort of feels the same way. I I think the capabilities of uh, AI models today are also something that, you know, we couldn't imagine. Like machines have always been machines and for them to sort of now behave and mimic or emulate human behavior and, you know, seeing that level of intelligence is actually mind boggling. But the thing is, you know, it's actually different, like in the sense that it's available to everyone and you can actually imagine building really great applications using AI. In the early days of Google, like all the innovation was actually happening at Google and not outside. I think with AI, the innovation is actually happening across the board, existing large companies, many, many new startups. All of them actually, you know, have access to these greatest AI technologies that they can use to build great products. It feels, you know, similarly amazing, like in the sense that it's things that we couldn't imagine were possible. But at the same time, it feels like a more level playing field to me. And as a two-person startup, you could actually, you know, build something amazing using these technologies. So what feels the same is how it was unbelievable what technology could accomplish in different ways. But what feels different is that the playing field is more level now and, and it's easier to compete with the Googles of the world. That's right. Yeah. At some point, you decided to leave Google and start Rubrik. What was behind that decision? I was actually quite happy at Google working on difficult problems. It was actually a friend of mine who wanted to start a company and they wanted to do it with me. And they were able to convince me. Like, you know, I actually like I'd spent like over a decade at Google. Uh, I did start to feel a little bit like, you know, the challenge was sort of going away from being at Google for so long. And, you know, you sort of get so familiar with, you know, the way of working there. And it was exciting for me to actually just like step away and challenge myself a lot more. Like, you know, where I don't have this, the massive resources and the brand of a large company, you know, and, you know, Google allowed us to create, like start bold projects, but you could fail and there's no harm done. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like, you know, maybe soften people a little bit. Like, you know, I, I felt like you need a real challenge. So I think the startup was really exciting to me in the sense that you will be fully in charge of creating success for this company. Tell us what Rubrik set out to do. It's an enterprise uh, software company. Our goal was to basically help businesses keep all of their data safe. We go to a business and we'll connect with all of their data systems 
make a copy of their data, keep it in a safe place so that if anything bad happens to their core systems or data, then they can come back to Rubrik and get a good copy of their data back. So basically, it's, it's around data protection, safety, and security. So what was your one big takeaway from the Rubrik time? I love takeaways yeah. in case yeah, you can't yeah, tell. Like, <laughs> and there are always so many. So, so I, I think know. one takeaway from, from Rubrik was, for me personally, you know, when you start a company, I never felt that level of confidence and you'd always underestimate what you would achieve. As we grew, we just realized that, wow, like, you know, we never thought that, you know, this is how far we could come, but you could keep building a great business, you know, solve big problems and actually learn a lot about yourself. Like the company now, it does hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and has a few thousand employees. I think it was just incredible that like you can start small and grow every year and a large company gets built, like, you know, look back 10 years later, you know, you couldn't imagine that you could do this when you start. So, yeah. so um, big things are possible. And as an entrepreneur, sometimes, you know, you don't think you can, but actually it will happen. Amazing people will join you and you will learn along the way. Other people will sort of contribute to the mission. And ultimately, you know, you can achieve, you know, success, you know, beyond your wildest imaginations. It's almost like get the plane in the air and then worry about where you're going. Or how yeah. far you're going to go with it? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So how did the how did the rubric chapter close? So we were actually achieving pretty good business success, and in four years, we were more than a thousand people in the company. As we grew, we realized that you know we were not being productive anymore as a company. Our engineers were not able to write even half as much code as they were writing before. Our salespeople were also selling you know less product than what our early people used to be able to sell. We wanted to understand why, you know, as the company grows, of course, there's sometimes, you know, something slow down, like, you know, it's part of natural growth, but what could we do better? So we'd ask people. So every, every six months, we would do a pulse survey, ask people, like, what was coming in their way of doing great work? What could the company do better on? And one thing that we uniformly saw was people would complain about being not enabled. People complaining, you know, that, hey, I cannot find anything in this company. I don't know where to go and look for things. And this was a, this was a big issue. And that was actually, it was apparent because, you know, at Rubrik, we were a modern company built in the SaaS era. We had 300 different systems, you know, where our company knowledge was stored. And you, you never knew where to go and look for things. You know, I also didn't know. So when we saw this problem, I'm a search engineer. So the first thought that comes to me when people complain they can't find things is that, yes, we should have a good search engine uh, on top of all of our business content. So I tried to buy a product like that for our company. And that's when I realized that nobody was solving this problem. There was no product to buy. And I got really excited about, you know, solving this problem because I felt it was fundamental. It was a problem that I had faced all my career. Those surveys were the catalyst for us starting Glean. Okay. So now we finally arrived at Glean, which I'm really excited to get into. Um, maybe you could just start by giving us a, a kind of the quick pitch on what Glean does, and then we can get into, you know, some of the challenges and, and, and how you built it. So Glean is very simple. Think of it like Google or ChatGPT, but inside your company. Glean connects with all of your company knowledge, data, and information that lives across your different systems. And then, you know, it gives people this one place where they can come and ask questions, and Glean will answer their questions using your company knowledge in a safe and secure way. Amazing. So uh, everything you want to know, that file you're trying to find, even actually answers to questions you might have in, in natural language. Yeah, that's what you can accomplish by tapping into all the various applications and um, data that you have on on any given company. That's right. Yeah. So, what were some of the first challenges you had to solve? One of the most difficult things to do is like, how do you actually connect with all of this information that lives inside a company? There are thousands of you know different applications and systems, 
and basically, you know, building these connections into um, integrations, you know, with those enterprise apps, understanding knowledge inside those systems, understanding permissioning and governance of that information. That's a big challenge. So to be able to answer people's questions, you need to have access to all the knowledge, which means you have to build these integrations into like some of the most popular applications that a business uses. Uh, applications like Google Drive or Slack or SharePoint or Salesforce. So you have to actually go and build that technology and integrations with like many of these different enterprise apps. And what if you can't? Like what if Salesforce won't let you or, you know, because it feels like if even one of those cards falls, the whole house can fall. Yeah, so that's, that's a good point. I mean, the generally they don't have a reason to not allow a product like us to connect with their systems, you know. The way applications are built are in this, you know, open model where your data is available to other apps, other apps' data is available to you, and you sort of interconnect and and work with each other. In an enterprise setting, the data that lives within these systems actually are owned by the customer, not by the vendor. And so if if somebody builds a closed app in today's world, people are not going to buy those products. Everybody wants interoperability. Why do you think Google didn't build this? Google actually had a product for enterprise search for more than 20 years um, or like more than 20 years back. It's just that I think for them, this was not the key focus. Google has been primarily a consumer-oriented company. So I think part of it was just that, like, you know, I think it was just didn't fit, you know, didn't align with what people in the company wanted to work on. Brings me up to another question. I've wondered about this is, you know, enterprise search has been something that people have been trying to work on for decades. So why now and what's different? The technology infrastructure these days is fundamentally different from what it used to be 20 years back. So you're totally right that the problem has been around for a long time. But if you think about like, you know, where data is stored today, today, most of the business data is actually stored in the cloud, is stored in these different SaaS applications. The second thing is that, you know, you have a lot more information these days around like how people are using that data, their open APIs. You sort of understand people, you understand like what content they're actually, you know, using in their day-to-day work. And you can utilize, you know, a lot of these signals to actually build a really good search product. Like, you know, something that we couldn't build, you know, 10 years back. And then there's, there is AI, which actually plays a big role in like what kind of product we can build today. So we are no longer limited to like somebody coming in and asking, typing in like two words, and then we show them documents that match that has those two words. Mm-hmm. Like you can actually build a much smarter search experience today where you can actually ask, you know, long form questions in natural language. You can understand them at a semantic level. You can actually pull documents that are talking about those concepts, even though they don't have the exact words that you chose in your question. And then we can actually use AI to extract the actual answer by reading those documents and surface it back to you. So, so the technology has completely changed. So like, like the things that you can do today, you know, were just not simply possible, like even two years back. Did you have AI in the beginning? Like, I'm trying to understand your first version of your product that you sold. Yeah. Like, who were the first customers and what was in that product? Yeah. So our, our first customers were the technology companies, typically like mid-sized, you know, technology companies. Confluent, for example, was one of them. Outreach and a few others. Our first product, like, you know, it looked and felt very much like Google, but inside your company. You come in, you ask questions, you know, Glean is connected with all these systems like Confluence, Jira, Salesforce, uh, Slack, and it's going to bring the right information back to you. Now, we were already using large language models in our product, like at that time. So in 2019, five years back, before it all became like, you know, pre-GPT. That's right, pre-GPT. 
And those models were not as good as um, GPT-4, but they're actually still like a step function above all the previous generation search technology. Did you develop those models just in-house or were you using? Yeah, we used the bird family of models that were actually put in open domain by Google. And you could take those models for each one of our customers. We could actually go and extend that model and make it work, you know, on their corpus, on their data and their knowledge. And so that's what we would do. Like, you know, we still do that. You know, we build dedicated language models for each one of our customers that understand their lingo. And that's what we use, like behind the scenes to, for example, do semantic matching. So you can come and ask for things and, you know, we'll give you back the relevant documents, even if they don't have the right words that you chose in your question. So now I think we're much more familiar with AI, certainly, but the idea that you can have a conversational search, um, really high quality search with, you know, ChatGPT or any of the other competitors out there. Like, there's a sort of a sense of like, oh, everyone can do this now. So how do you di differentiate today? Well, I mean, you know, search is really, really hard. And AI, like, you know, you know, it works great in demos, but it's actually really hard to actually make it work in, you know, in a real world application and enterprise application. Like, if you look at these models, like there are a bunch of problems with them. Number one, you know, they don't work in an enterprise setting because it's very, very hard to actually train and build models inside your company with your corpus. Most companies don't have enough data. Uh, the second problem with enterprises is that, you know, most of your data is actually private in nature. You know, not, not everybody has access to all the sensitive documents inside the company. So this technology trade doesn't actually work that way. Like, you know, once you put any information in the model, it leaks information. Models can also make mistakes. There are hallucinations, you know, that everybody talks about. For us, the objective is that we want to actually, you know, help answer people's questions using your company knowledge. The way to make that happen is you have to actually combine a really powerful search technology with this model and AI technology. I feel like I want to ask ChatGPT, can you dumb this down for me? What do you mean by combining a search technology with, yeah. with LLM technology? How does that work? So let's say that, you know, I ask, hey, how many days of PTO do we get in our company per year? Now... The actual model, GPT-4 or any other large language model, it has no idea about what am I talking about? What company, that document that mentions, you know, how many days we get, that model doesn't have access to that data. Mm -hmm. So how do you use the model to actually answer that question? You know, typically what you would do is you ask a question, you know, you have a search engine inside your company, which is what Glean is, uh, which will actually pull together relevant pieces of documents. Maybe it will pick two or three documents. One of them actually has the answer to it. And you'll take all of those documents and the original question and ask GPT-4 to work on it. So that's the architecture. I see. Any AI application that you want to build inside your business, you have to follow this kind of a, you know, architecture where you use the search engine to actually assemble the right pieces of data that could answer a question. And then you actually have a model, just read those documents and answer the questions. You know, sort of really hard to actually make it all work. Like, you know, one of the big things with uh, how do you actually pick the right information? because it's very easy to imagine, right? Like, you know, if you actually give the model the wrong information to work on, it's going to actually give you the wrong answer back. Mm -hmm. So you fundamentally have to solve the problem of given a question or a task, you know, you have to go find like the best, the most up-to-date, accurate, right pieces of information across the millions of documents and conversations that you have within your company. Uh, you have to find those right pieces of information and give it to the model to work on. And that's why search is so important. And it is hard, and that's the problem that we've been working on for the last five years. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for error there. How do you actually avoid hallucinations, avoid 
you know, data leakage, avoid the wrong permissions, and to do it all while also ensuring that you got the right piece of data in, in such a high stakes game as, you know, enterprise? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, again, boils down to how good your search component is in this AI application architecture. So talking about information leakage in Glean, you know, when, when you come and ask a question, it actually knows who you are. And it also understands all the documents or all the channels in Slack that you have permissions for. So when you come and ask questions in Glean, it will never surface anything back to you that you don't have permissions to use within your company. So with that restriction in place, whenever somebody comes and asks a question, we're never giving the AI model any piece of information that we didn't have access to. And therefore, it's safe and secure. That's how we sort of prevent leaks. And then the same kind, same thing actually solves the hallucination problem. These models are, they follow instruction. So you can actually tell the AI model, tell GPT-4 that, hey, I'm asking you a question, but I want you to use only these, you know, two pages worth of information that I'm actually sending to you. Only use this information to answer my question. Don't use, you know, your knowledge that is baked into your model already. You can still make mistakes. So the other thing that we do in Glean is that we never trust the model. We never trust what AI is going to write. Every line of response that comes back from AI, we actually go and fact check that line with the information that we you know, provided to the model in the first place. So those are some of the techniques that we use to ensure that as an end user, you will only be able to use the knowledge that you have access to inside the company. And whatever answers you see back coming from AI, that they have been fact checked and verified. One thing I'm trying to understand about the different AI platforms is, you know, you look at a Gemini or a ChatGPT and it seems like they're very generalized. They've kind of absorbed all this data and they can give you specific answers. But at least in my experience, if you try to go really deep, um, it doesn't quite hold out. And then I've, we've talked with other companies that are doing more of like a verticalized deep dive LLM training. And I'm just curious how you think, like, what are the strengths of the deeper dive approach? Do you feel like going deeper into a single vertical, you can actually get much better answers? And how do you show that those answers are better? Yes. So I think that's absolutely the way to, um, you know, how AI technology is going to be used um, inside enterprises. The models are, you, I think you should think of them as like a human that has the ability to read a paragraph worth of information or a page worth of information and do something with it. So if you sort of like limit your mental model of, you know, what an LLM does, if you think of it that way, then to actually solve real problems, like, you know, for different verticals, for example, let's say that, you know, I want to actually build an AI assistant that does a great job answering legal questions, then you will actually go and use this model for just that capability. But then I'm going to do a lot of work on top of that model to actually you know, get it, like, make it understand, like, legal documents, legal, you know, legal sort of, you know, speak, you know, better than what the model does. That's what we see in the enterprises is that, is that you start to see real value when you actually put a good amount of R&D effort on top of, like, you know, what these models can actually provide you. So when you think of a competition, are you more worried by the big companies, Microsoft, Google, or are you more worried about the small enterprise search startups? Yeah. As a startup entrepreneur, the the one lesson I've learned is that first, you know, you need to worry about yourself you know, before you worry about mm -hmm. others. And so I think a big part of, you know, clean, like our destiny is going to be governed by like, you know, how well we do in our company and like how, how well we execute, keep innovating. In terms of challenges, I think it's going to come from both sides for us. Like all the large companies are putting in a lot of effort into like making AI useful, you know, to their customers. 
a um, lot of startups obviously coming as well so generally we don't worry about that generally we focus on like our customers and learn from them what they need and make sure that you know we're building a great product for them and as long as we do that like hopefully competition doesn't matter and what is the thing you worry the most about about yourselves as the company scales we are going from a startup mode you know where you have 20 people 50 people 100 people like now we're 300 and you know by the end of this year we'll probably be like you know 700 people and yeah. so it's it's big scale and everybody has to learn like you know it's, it's going to be like a new job for all of us like you know all of a sudden this year you know cuz yeah. it's a different company it's a different environment it's a different market this the pace the pace of how fast you have to move to keep keep your head above water exactly so yeah so a lot of yeah, so that's that's why i'm saying that execution you know is is actually the biggest challenge not competition i want to talk a little bit about team building uh, you've built a lot of teams you've worked in a lot of teams I run an agency so I see team building from an agency's perspective which is oftentimes companies either want to work with agencies exclusively or they want to build their own team exclusively or some combination in the middle. Um what's your view about working with an agency partner? We do both. So we actually work with agencies uh, and then we also build in-house uh, recruiting teams. Typically for specialized positions, we like to use agencies more because they're more expertise like and like you know we're going to hire one person and to actually have you know you know have our our recruiting team sort of build expertise in that domain and figure out how to do it first is going to take too long and second you know it's not going to be efficient because you know once you hire the person you don't have you know that skill that you learned over you know 6 months is no longer that useful to you so mm-hmm. so that's so that's a, that's the model we choose for our software engineering roles like that typically you know we run in house because you know we hire a lot of them and our recruiting team is you know is really good at finding the best talent for that and what would you say are the key qualities in an agency that you look for when I mean, you mention specialization so i'm sure a particular skill set is part of that but aside from that what what do you look for in an agency i think the most important thing is the ability for you to talk to the person at the agency and see like how well they can understand the requirements of the job that we, you know or the role that we are trying to actually fill and also for them to understand a little bit more about our our company quickly and our culture and like you know building this notion of who would be successful you know at glean versus not mm-hmm. some agencies will actually ask us more questions around tell us more about your company and i'll tell them like why like here's the job spec you know go and give us the resumes but when they actually come and you know ask us questions i think it sort of gives us that confidence that you know they are actually trying to go beyond like you know just the right hey, we need these four skills they're actually trying to actually match people who fit in the you know in our culture that's one attribute that is important for us and they have the experience to understand that not every solution works in every team in every right. situation that's right so moving forward with glean then what's your long term vision like where is the product headed next we believe that everybody who works every person who works in the world in the future they will have multiple ai assistants that are going to actually help them do their work in fact a lot of work that we do today you know in 5 years from now our expectations would be that there's going to be some ai based assistant that's actually going to do most of the heavy lifting for us hmm. our work is going to get uplifted you know like sometimes i explain to people that like you know today in a company in a large company executives senior managers they would actually have an assistant you know who's actually doing this already like you know i have an assistant you know who helps me do a lot of my work um, mm-hmm. but that this is going to get democratized by ai in the future everybody no matter how senior you are you can actually have a really amazing assistant that's going to actually know everything about your work life and use that information to basically 
both proactively help you and reactively help you do your work. And so Glean wants to be, you know, that assistant for you. Like we want to be the companion that you have in your work life. You can come to Glean, ask any questions. It's going to actually answer those questions for you. Glean can actually take, you know, keep track of your tasks and actually do those tasks for you, proactively help you with things you need to do. So that, that's where we are headed, building a really smart AI-based assistant that understands your work life and then proactively helps you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm, a lot of people I in my work circles are already using AI as an assistant, but you do have to remind it, you know, oh, no, no, here's the context. You always have to set it up and, and you yeah. usually don't have access to all the data that you could really start to pull interesting insights out of. Of course, ChatGPT just, you know, released a new feature where it's going to try to remember more about you and you can update that and edit that. But um, that's a far cry from the holy grail of being able to just have access to everything you've already been doing. You can imagine if in a perfect world, at least for Glean, you have every email, every calendar, every document, sorting through that all, finding it all, securing it all. That is, of course, the, the big challenge. Yeah. Um, but but I think that's a really interesting vision for the future of productive search. You know, I want to say enterprise, but it's really productivity. Is a, a Exactly. It's about productivity. It's about knowing what you need right now. Like For example, imagine this, like, you know, right after this, like in six minutes, I'm going to have a new meet, next meeting. I won't have that much time to prepare. Like, what if, you know, Glean actually just told me that, hey, you're meeting this person. This is what you talked to them last time. You know, mm -hmm. the action items, you know, and gives me the plan, like it's right in front of me, you know, as I jump into the call. So those are the kind of yeah. things that AI is going to actually, you know, enable, you know, once you have that access to your work life. I'll try to give you at least a minute or two back, but I do have two more questions for you. Um, one of them is just in your thoughts and outside of, you know, your own business, what you see the future of AI going towards? Um, what's the vision you see in the world, the future of AI? AI capabilities are actually going to become very common. All products that we're going to be buying, uh, all products that we use, they would all get smarter. They're going to be co-pilots that every application is going to build. That just frankly makes that application easier to interact with. That's sort of, you know, where we're headed. Like, you know, we don't, we don't feel like a lot of people talk about the AI hype and, you know, is it overblown and like, is it really real? Are there real capabilities? You know, we strongly believe, you know, that this is a really powerful technology and you'll, it will become ubiquitous. You'll actually see every application, enterprise application, as an example, having these AI capabilities. One thing that we think will change is that today people are trying to actually charge for AI and I think that's going to go away because it's, it's yeah. just, it's, it'll be the basic expectation. Like, you know, you're selling me a product. If it's not smart, I'm not going to buy it. What would be your uh, piece of advice to early stage founders who are trying to build something with AI? AI gives the opportunity to actually rethink like a lot of different problems and solutions. Like, you know, think about a business application, you know, that exists today. AI sort of will fundamentally change like how you would do it in the future. So there are a lot of opportunities. My main advice to people is that think of AI as actually just one of the building blocks. If the 90% of your idea is about, you know, hey, GPT-4 is so powerful and I'm going to use it, that's not enough. Yeah, You have to think of, you know, the AI model as just one of the enablers, you know, for the for whatever idea you have, just like, you know, how cloud has been an enabler. It's just one technology like like any other as an AI entrepreneur, you should think more about the business problem that you're trying to solve and the overall product solution, and then see like how AI can actually enable you, you know, achieve some of those things. Don't make it more you know, so much about AI as opposed to the actual business problem. Great take, great advice. Um, okay, I, I do actually have one more question. It's the one we ask everyone on the show, so I'll get you out of here on this. Why is Glean the next great thing? 
First of all, we have great people. We have a great product. We're solving a really fundamental, important problem that everybody in the world suffers from, but nobody has solved this problem for them. We feel like, you know, we have the right team um, and the right foundation technology to actually go and solve a really important problem. And if anyone out there has ever spent any time looking for something, a document, a file, an answer at work, then you've also experienced this problem. So check out Glean. Arvind, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your time. Uh, if people want to reach out, where should they find you? They can connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email. That's arvind at glean.com. And I really, yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. The Next Great Thing is hosted by Andrew Greenstein, CEO of SF AppWorks, a technical agency that helps organizations and entrepreneurs design, develop, launch, and maintain web apps, mobile apps, and platform integrations. The podcast is produced by Kristen Sills with marketing by Leah Roos. For more episodes, search for The Next Great Thing wherever you listen to podcasts or check us out at sfappworks.com.